Hi, my name is Dissi Obanda and you are listening to Lex Pandemonium. Lex being Latin for law and pandemonium being chaos. Whether it is in meeting the commercial world's need for creative solutions in drafting contracts, the legalities of wage bill management, or the grungy details of law governing curfews and authorities using mandatory quarantine as prison, Lex Pandemonium is here to help you be in the know about the law. And if you have questions or need more information, well, feel free to drop a comment and we'll try our best to get you what you need. Devo is the CEO at East African Center for Law and Justice, a non-governmental organization based in Nairobi. We talked to her about the access or lack of access to justice in Kenya during the COVID period, quarantine and individual rights during the curfew. Listen in. Joy Devo, how has the work situation been like for you? Well, this is one has been interesting because, yes, I have done more Zoom meetings than I thought I would ever, I mean, I have enough for a lifetime as it is. But uh, it has been a very useful tool in showing that you can accomplish much without leaving your house. That is, I think for me, it's an epiphany. Because for a long time, we kept thinking, I mean, driving from meeting to meeting, from place to place, feeling you had to be there. But now I realize, well, it's a new normal. And I think moving forward, especially for late night meetings, this might be a way to go. It might be a plan. But, yeah, but also once in a while I have to turn up at the office for something or the other, mainly for you know, practical stuff. When you need a quiet space to work or some printing or some work. And also be, be trying out the electronic court system. Yes. Not been very 100% good, but uh, we've been trying to make do with what we have. And we made some progress, I guess, even in terms of with the law moving forward. Most probably, most of our interlocutory applications moving forward will be done online and only turn up in court for the hearings where you need to bring witnesses. I'm hoping that stays. Yes, please tell us a little about the organization that you had. The East Africa Center for Law and Justice is, um, it started in the year 2010 in the run up to the new constitution that we have. Basically, it was formed under the auspices of the church. And our main idea is to agitate for human rights and human rights um, issues that are of concern to the church. So we are a strong pro-life voice. We also speak up for people who are persecuted. But over and above that, specifically in Kenya, we try and have a hand in policy and legislation formation, advising the church on, for example, a position paper, what legislation means, and when they are doing public participation, basically giving advice so that they're able to participate more knowledgeably. So uh, civic education is also a very big arm of the work that we do. And then once in a while we we undertake public interest litigation, again, on matters that are of interest uh, to the church usually. So maybe churches have been closed down or there's a pastor someone who's not allowed to exercise um, uh, his freedom of association, maybe as as he would like to. So we also try and lend a hand, logistical support as it were. So in a nutshell, that's what the East Africa Center for Law and Justice was established to do, and that's what we do. 
just off the cuff, do you practice as well as run East African Center for Law and Justice? Yes, I recently started a small law firm. It's a boutique law firm still. So it's sort like a, a mega law firm. So Masindam be one advocate. And primarily, again, I started that because that time when I realized that there was matters that needed to go to court, that the East Africa Center for Law and Justice was not particularly um, outfitted for. Yes. Because we are very targeted in the type of legislation we engage in. Okay. So maybe it's, it's a person who wants to sue in his own behalf or uh, there's a friend who has got a matter or, or it's public interest litigation. Mm. You know, it's a class action lawsuit. So I do that under the auspices of Massimo before and Associates. So right now it's still very much a boutique law firm. Uh, maybe one day we will grow and become like a proper, fully legitimate, you know, seven spanner workshop. What is the access to justice situation in our country in the wake of Corona? What does that mean for constitutional rights? What does that mean for criminal law? Um, so let's start with constitutional rights. One of the problems we have in this particular dispensation is that the courts have been working um, remotely. And so there are some things that you may need done with immediacy, but eventually get done. But because everything you have to send by email and get a response back and email again and serve by email and get responses back, you find the immediacy is lost. Uh, part of me thinks that that is a bit of a good thing as well because Kenyans have become overly litig- litigious. And so it wasn't a place where everything was ending up in court, even stuff that did not need to be in court. Mm. So there has been a whittling down of, because if something is absolutely not necessary, now you're not bothering to go to court because it's a lot of effort for not very certain results. But we have also seen an increase in efficacy because, like I said earlier, Things that ordinarily would take up court-sitting time are now being heard remotely. So you send in an application. So, for example, let me give a recent example. When Senator Ledamo Lekina was challenging his removal as chair, he simply filed his papers online. The judge considered them from what he was, and they sent an email back with a ruling. Now, that would have been man hours preparing papers, stamping, printing, taking to the law courts, the law court will have to go through all the papers, you know, that the technicality. Yes. So there's the immediacy of um for example urgent constitutional matters that has been lost, but at the same time it has come with the benefit of us having to ask the question, is this really necessary? Do I have to do this now? And I'm saying all of us, the courts as well as the litigants, as well as the lawyers are having to come to that place of reckoning, of deciding. And which is a good thing, because backlog in, in court sometimes is, is crazy, but if you really whittle down, if you give the matters another 10 years, you find a lot of matters are thrown out for non-prosecution, because they are filed in the heat of the moment, and then the dispute dissipated, and the people just abandon them in court. So, Joy, tell us about the effect of the scale-down or scale-back of court activity on criminal justice, seeing many reports on the news about persons that have been arrested and taken to quarantine, and quarantine has been acting as police custody. Um, there's crimes that are crimes off the bat. So maybe it's a burglary or an attempted murder or something else that um, ordinarily would be investigated by police. 
when such people are arrested, they are just taken to police custody as usual, and they are in court because every day the courts are taking plea and they are setting bond terms. So for most of them, the courts are setting uh, bail and bond terms that allow them to stay out of the remand prison because they are trying not to take COVID into the remand prison. So based so on that, you're saying at least judges and magistrates are sitting. Um, for criminal for, matters, yes. Yes, to, to take plea. So the hearings are not proceeding, but yes. at least they are taking plea and setting court dates for when the matters will be had in future. Okay. So that is happening. Now then, then there's the others that are crimes that are not crimes. These are like you said, people who've been arrested uh, for violating curfew. Yes. Now, initially, uh, people would be rounded up and taken to the police station, but we have seen the hue and cry about that. The WHO even waded into this uh, particular conversation and censured the Kenyan government for actually posing a danger to people by this particular measure. So there's two things that have happened. What they've done is rather than holding curfew violators in police custody, they hold them under police guard, but in Nairobi, for example, it's been taken to the Kasarani uh, Gymnasium. Okay. The Kasarani Gymnasium has been held into, has been turned into a holding area, yes. and the court convenes there. So if you've been to the gymnasium, it sits, it sits about 6,000 people, so there's plenty of room for social distancing and for people to have like room to be held, but not to be together like in a police cell. So that's how they sort of try to mitigate it. The other thing that um, has changed of of recent is people who are curfew violators are not being held in quarantine. Now that's not happening anymore. Quarantine is being reserved for people who have actually either displayed symptoms of the disease or have been in such close proximity with somebody with the disease that it is important to keep them under observation. It's important to note that now the Ministry of Health has also sort of relaxed their rules somewhat and they are allowing people to also quarantine at home. That's that if, for example, you've got a young baby, but you need to quarantine, before, you know, they would just take everybody into quarantine by force and by fire. Yes. But now they are actually looking at circumstances. Like, for example, the people who came from China the other day, there are those who are gravely ill or they need special uh, equipment and facilities. They were released into the care of the physicians who undertook that they will supervise them as they do their 14 days in their home. So that relaxation has also been useful because before that one-size-fits-all approach was being misused to punish people with no good reason and actually exposing them and putting them at risk of even contracting the virus. Absolutely. Somebody used the word weaponize. Tell us, in this time or in a curfew, what is the law that is prevailing? And as you talk about that, um, some people have used the term state of emergency. Are we in a state of emergency and what does that entail? No, 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 we're not in a state of emergency. What we are under is regulations that have been given by the Ministry of Health in a pandemic situation. So the Public Health uh, Act and not even just the act, the practice around the world in, an, in a time of war or an emergency, like you said, a state of emergency, like extreme floods, or like now we're in the middle of a pandemic, the minister in charge or even the president is given sort of executive power, like a fear, to sort of say, from now on, this particular section of the law is suspended. So, for example, we have a freedom of association. It has no time limit on when to associate. But now they tell us, you know what, stay indoors between this time and that time. 
the rationale for this one was actually very simple. During the day, more or less, people police each other, as it were. So you can observe social distancing, you can try and mitigate the effects of uh, coming to too many people together at the same time because it's during the day. But at night, you find people getting a greater that lowers their inhibition because they are a little bit, um, you know, dizzy and delightful, for yes. lack of a better word. <laughs> and that lowers their inhibition. Dizzy and delightful. You also find that at night, it's not so easy for the police to to police people. Yes. So you find that at night it's easier if people stay inside. That's why you're dealing with a much smaller number of people outside. Now, this has the effect of needing to be renewed every so often because these are extraordinary measures, so they cannot be in place indefinitely. And that is why you find that the government says it's just for the next 10 days, the next 14 days, it's for the next 21 days, because they're extraordinary measures, because we still mm. have our rights enshrined in the Constitution. But yes. the Public Health Act gives the minister the opportunity to help the medical uh, community to cope with the pandemic. And so the, by limiting your movement, by limit, imposing the lockdowns or the cessation of movement and other things, it helps sort of scale back and give the, the medics a handle on this thing. Based on that, you know, is the question, at which point in time are people's fundamental rights um, thrown out of the window vis-a-vis a government directive that I need to stay at home? All rights are balanced with responsibility. There is no right that's absolute. So a right uh, is beneficial to you, but responsibility is towards others. In this particular situation, you find because your right to move around is making other people be at danger of contracting this dangerous virus, then you are told, don't move around as much until you contain the virus. So all rights are balanced with responsibility. And I think that's the thing that comes. the sort of communication that has been failing to come through from the Ministry of Health because it's been telling them to stay in the house and people are not making the two plus two equals four. But the other bit is, like I said before, all these things must be one, nuanced, two, reasoned, and three, time-bound. So nuanced in the sense that you need to understand who you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a, a largely illiterate population, there has to be a way that you communicate the message that is understandable to them without them having to know the nitty-gritty of it is made up of facts surrounded by lipids who do. So that you need to break it down so people understand what you're talking about. Secondly, it needs to be reasoned. So you tell people we are taking this particular action because this is what we're trying to achieve. So, like, for example, um, one of the criticisms I have with the approach we have in Kenya is that we don't know what you're looking out for. The Mwanainchi, the regular Jews, have not been told what 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 does a flat curve look like. You know, we used to be flatten the curve. Yes. So we, we sat in our houses waiting for the curve to flatten. We are not sure that the curve has flattened. We've been told to stay home for further. So you get to a place where kids are like, ah, you know what, this is like the boy who cried wolf. So if you go out in the streets of Nairobi now, it's business as usual. Yes. Guys go to a place that like, they don't know what they're looking out for. So people so are back has, to work. Yeah, it has to be reason. Then finally, it has to be time-bound. You can't just tell guys, just stay in until the day we see zero, zero, zero on the scale. I'm not saying that that's what the government has done, but as in, it, there has to be an end, an expiration date. Because if you decide, for example, you're never getting out of the house again, then what? How will you feed 
ourselves? How will we propel the economy? How will we? How will even government know that the measures are working? People might be dying in their houses and they have no clue. So everything must be. There must be no one. There must be reason and it must be measure. What recourse does a person have? in the case where their rights have been violated based on the rules that have been given concerning the curfews? It depends on who's violating your rights. Right now in this particular situation, the government has fiat, basically. So they get to say what we can and cannot do. And at this point in time, because of the pandemic, we just we comply, we cooperate as best as we can. So if you refuse to cooperate, for example, and you go out after curfew and insist that you have a freedom of movement, you'll be arrested and clamped down and you will be taken in and consequences will follow. And you cannot claim that your rights are violated because you're informed. But what about the individuals that we saw on TV, for instance, on the first day of the curfew in Mombasa? And what about the 15 or so people who are said to have died because of the enforcement of the curfew? What recourse do they have? Now, that is a matter that several people can take up. One legal body that takes that up is IPOA. So the IPOA, the Independent Police Oversight Authority, police the police. So any cases of police brutality, and this is a public service uh, announcement, yes. document them as much as you can. Take photos, videos, collect um, police force numbers, anything. Report to the IPOA with as much information and as much evidence as possible. Because even post-COVID, they're able to investigate the matter and take the policemen, the individual policemen, to book. Now, why is this um, important? Is because once the police force uh, changed to become the police service, one thing that they did is that they have a charter from the police to the public. And one of the things that they have committed to do is that they will observe and preserve our human dignity at all times. Even when you are under arrest, they will preserve your human dignity. I bet there are many listening who had no idea that there's a police charter, a police service charter. There is. And if if they violate it, the policeman himself now takes personal responsibility. So you'll not just be suing the IG. Of course, you will add him as an interested party and the attorney general as an interested party. But you can go after the police, individual police officer and get sanctions against him as a person. Ordinarily, this ends up in any protection being taken of him. And if he's found guilty, he will be sentenced according to the criminal law. So in addition to losing his job, he will have criminal sanctions for his actions or negligence. So I would encourage anybody who has faced police brutality, as much as possible, collect as much evidence as you can. And for members of the public, if you see somebody's rights are being violated, take photos, take videos, try and find out as much as possible as you can with the officers concerned. Or if not, find, take the date, the time, and what police station they came from, because in the police station they should be able to know who was on the beat where. And those police officers, even after COVID is over, will have action taken against them. There's no justification for your rights being violated. So, mm. based on our Bill of Rights, what sorts of suits are we likely to see post-COVID-19? There'll be plenty of individuals about... Uh, wrongful arrest and prosecution, especially those people who are thrown in quarantine without due process. And um, right now, I think the major Achilles heel 
is on people whose rights have been violated during this time. Now, on the legality of the measures themselves or the responses, maybe those will take, um, it will be way, way, way post-COVID. So, for example, maybe somebody might decide, you know what, the lockdown was put on for way too long. I lost my entire business. The government is to blame. They did not react in good time to save my business. Mm-hmm. So there are some of those that you'll find guys might decide, you know what, you're going after the state for this. The others you've seen in other countries, which I don't know whether in Kenya people will come up to that level, but like in, in Nigeria and in India, yes. I know the law society in Nigeria decided that they're going to sue the Chinese government for yes. making and releasing, unleashing COVID on the suspecting members of the world. But in my opinion, after such an extraordinary event happening, you've seen people like even the Mau Mau filing suits way, way, many years later. You may find people who maybe their health was affected by COVID and may not even file suit until after 10, 20 years when more is known about. Because right now the, the virus is so novel that maybe it causes infertility or maybe it causes incurable madness or blindness. So it's, I don't have a, a very clear crystal ball on this one. That's where I'm seeing we're headed in the near future. But just in closing, what can the legal profession, what can organizations such as yours do at a time such as these to assist the vulnerable masses or the marginalized ones in accessing justice? Okay, as lawyers, first I think this is an oppo- a great opportunity for us to innovate. This is a time for us to support the full digitization of the courts such that we have less paperwork going around because one of the things that I've also noticed with this time is that court filing fees are considerably less. Everything was costed. Even us when we were counting our disbursements with our clients, I mean, you cost everything, including the staple in the corner. <laughs> yes. But without without uh, the massive amount of paperwork, we are not only saving time, we're spending, we're saving a lot of space, a lot of energy, and it is so efficient. So I'm thinking this is the time for us as a legal profession to fully embrace the digitization of the court process so that we are able to go to court with your iPad and all the papers are online. There's nothing like I was served or not served. Everything is there, you know. Just get on the portal and let's litigate and let's get it over and done. Because I think a lot of the time we waste in, in the law courts is with all this random technicality of people serving and not serving and bringing the matter to attention of the court and not bringing, but if everything is, you know, you file everything is electronically in one central case, justice will be better. But moving forward, we also need to start um, reinventing how we do the law, because we have seen with technology as well, many more people are getting their content online. Yes. And so the traditional lawyer, uh, right now your rule is basically showmanship here. Now it's called even showmanship is not important because when they're reading your submission, they are not hearing you saying, oh, you mean, you mean showmanship in court? Yes. You know, sometimes it's for the louder the showman, the better the show they put on in court. It has to be a matter. But if there's no showmanship, the opportunity to go to court and articulate your matters, then it means we have to innovate. It's more about how how much you know and how much you're able to support your client's case. Yes, and there's some professions that are about to die off, like process serving now. If you're going to have 
uh, emails as a, an acceptable mode of serving process, then I do need to have a court process server. Um, then it remains a stain in the country because we serve very critical matters. But otherwise, everything else is just emailed to the, uh, the next person. But organizations such as mine have a very big role to play in terms, especially like for us, we do a lot of civil rights litigation, yes. uh, education. This is a time to also engage with members of the public. I am really grateful for all the things that I'm seeing going on online. Plenty of webinars and um, you know Zoom meetings where people are getting a lot of information. This is the way to go. A more informed populace will be more aware of their rights. And when they come to court, they'll come to court on a, on a need is basic because we've had people who take advantage of people's ignorance to get them file matters that are not even necessary. Really justiciable, yes. Yeah, so this is an opportunity for us to upscale our civil education, let people engage from a point of knowledge, and moving forward, let's have an opportunity also to reinvent the legal wheel. Because I think we've come to a place where we've gone full circle from the days of Lord Denning to now it's a dot com generation that <laughs> yes. is operating on another level. So there's, there's plenty of opportunity for us moving forward i think joy thank you very much thank you for giving us your time and your very wise words you're welcome you're welcome and it was my pleasure thank <laughs> you for having me how are you feeling i'm good do you have enough <laughs> yes i think this is i think this is quite a bit uh, i think this is